Welcome to the Men Talk Ubuntu podcast. Our guest this episode is Tony Saxby, a man we first met during our first Snowden walk in September 2020. He and a friend ventured up to the northwest from the southeast, bringing bags of love, laughter, and stories to share with everyone in their path. A loving father with the courage to share and take action on his mental health struggles, a good Samaritan who makes time to help others. Tony, it's a pleasure to have you here. Please tell us about your story and journey. Oh, good evening. Thanks very much. And uh, you know what? It's an absolute pleasure, pleasure to be asked to do this. I'm so a little nervous, a little excited. You know, the thought of being recorded is always a little bit uh, makes you anxious. But as, as, as we get into it, I'm sure everything will be all right. But yeah, so thanks for asking. And I was sitting there wondering, really, how I would start, you know, how did we come about? And I thought, you know, the best way to start this is, that, is to tell, tell a little bit where we met and our, you know, what, what brought me to that that place and on Mount Snowden that day when we was up there that was a little um a little random trip for me my friend was a big guy as you met Ian as well he's a good fun guy and uh, <laughs> he's about 18, and his goal was fitness he wanted to lose some weight I think his head weighs more than his body as you see <laughs> <laughs> and and he said to me we started doing some walking locally and uh He's, he's had his struggles in his past as well and uh, and we met on a on a on a on a recovery journey it was and it was a good few years ago and and obviously me I, I like my fitness and I've run several marathons and bits and bobs and and you know I like to look after myself Ian was always asking for advice on how to do his weight and I said well let's start doing some walks and one day we started doing some walks locally in the area and he just phoned me up on a Thursday he said listen I've booked a little bed and breakfast in Wales do you fancy coming to climb, climb Mount Snowden and I just thought I looked at him and I thought <laughs> 20 stone, 15 stone of head, five stone of body. <laughs> and you know, the worrying thing was, I thought I was going to get stuck halfway up with him. Because for me, without being too you know, modest, it wasn't a massive challenge because fitness wise, I'd be okay with it. But it was a great experience and what a, what a brilliant time to meet you guys. But what brought me there that day was when we've done that was in, um, in 2014. February the 14th, 2014, I took my last drop of alcohol. And uh, prior to that, I had 20 years of abuse of alcohol, substances, and a crazy lifestyle, really, a crazy, crazy lifestyle. I had a lovely family, one of seven children. And, um, and I suppose, really, you know, if you want to talk about mental health and just try and bring that into it a little bit, you know, I suppose mental health is something that's in my family. You know, there's quite a lot of uh, depression. There's quite a lot of, um, there's quite definitely quite a bit of substance abuse when it comes to alcohol, particularly. Some people say that alcoholism is a family illness. And, you know, it's clear to me that if you've got it, you've got it. If you haven't, you have it. I've got a brother that, that, um, that drinks safely, you know, he has a couple of beers and, um, and, he, and, and, he, and he has that power to say, do you know what? I've had enough. I don't want to, I don't want to drink anymore. See me from a youngster. I never had the ability to stop when I started. And that's what I learned. And uh, when I come into recovery, which which I do now in 2014, when I when I took my last drink, I learned that, you know, I had some form of allergy that if I put alcohol in my body, I couldn't stop when I started. But the thing that that really that really um, that I learned most about me was a physical addiction. To put down a drink was the easy bit for me, but to stay stopped was very hard because I had a mental mind that would tell me 
every time something went wrong or every time something was good, that this time it would be different. Do you get me? Like, so in my mind would just constantly say to me, yeah, this time it'd be different. Knowing full well that if I had a drink, I couldn't stop and it would end up in carnage. Something would tell me that this time it would be different. So from a young age, I now know, you know, when I look back at it, I was never really that character that fitted in, you know, and, uh, and I was always out to try and impress people and, and, uh, you know, I know we're going to talk about a bit of self-discovery as well, but a lot of my side was, uh, was to learn who I wasn't when I, when I got sober because uh, I spent so many years trying to be someone else just to try and please people. And I believe that my biggest defect of character was what I, you know, what I believe is, is like a low self-esteem. And I don't know where that comes from. I don't know where that comes from. Like I say, I had a loving family. My mum's got seven children, so we were brought up in a busy house. There's a little carnage and stuff like that, but... But, you know, out of those seven children, there's three people with alcohol problems. And, um, and you know, that's, that's quite um, – and that's, that's not nothing to do with the parents or the upbringing. That is because they all have this same thing as when they put a drink in and they can't stop. So, you know, um, I, I, I started drinking at a very young age. Just – I didn't realise back then that it would t- take me out of myself. You know, I could never sit comfortable with myself. And uh, I always wanted to be out of myself. I, I, I was restless, I was irritable, and I was discontent when I didn't have anything in me. And at early days, it wasn't just about getting drunk all the time. It was just about being comfortable in social situations and being out and about. But as time went on, what happened was I started to, uh, to depend on drink a bit more. And I never, ever thought it was going to be a problem. And I used to say to myself, the day I knew I used to drink a lot and everybody used to tell me I drank a lot, but I used to say to myself, the day that I will stop drinking is the day that it affects my work. But obviously 20 years later, when I can't get out of bed and I'm shaking, rattling worse than Ozzy Osbourne in the morning, it's too late. You know what I mean? It's too late. And that promise was made to myself and it was too late, but you know, years later. But so what, what I believe now is that, you know, that I suffered definitely without a shadow of a doubt from a, a multiple of, of um, head issues, I'd like to say, mind issues, you know. My, yeah. my brain would tell me that I wasn't welcome in places and then I had a drink and it felt great. My mind would tell me I was no good. You know, my, my self-esteem would say, you're, you're shit, you're no good, this, that and the other. And you have a drink and you think you're Superman. So I had a massive ego and a low self-esteem. So I would hide behind jokes. I would hide behind a smile. I would hide behind anything, you know, clothes, dress, appearance. But internally, I felt like shit all the time. But I didn't really know that that's why I was doing it. I didn't know that that's why I was drinking. I didn't know that's why I took drugs to, to be a part of a of something that I thought I fitted in. But I went into a pub at a young age. And I like to say I went to a party in 1990, summer it was, and it, and it finished. That party finished in 2012, really, you know, when, it, when, it, when I was absolutely broken and busted. But in that period of time... I never dealt with an emotion. I never dealt with an emotion. So if I had a good day, I would drink. If I have a bad day, I would drink. If I lost a job, I'd have a drink. If I got a job, I'd have a drink. If someone died, I'd have a drink. If there was someone born, I'd have a drink. So all these mixed emotions that we should be feeling to make us grow emotionally as a human, as a man, I never dealt with them. I never, I never, I never, I just drank on everything. So anything that used to happen, good, bad, or the ugly, whatever it was, I never dealt with it, so I just suppressed it until the next problem came up, and I just drank on that and drank on that and drank on that until the drink got worse and worse because when I put the drink down and wanted to stop, those emotions want to come up, and I'm banging trouble then because because my head then says, oh, you don't like this, and then you have to go again. But then because I have this allergy, 
that when I put a drink in me, I can't stop, the problems keep occurring. So I'm on this massive wheel and I can't get off it. I cannot get off it. So alongside all this drink and this carnage and this big smiley face, and I, I used to say like a little plastic gangster attitude, you know, like I was, I thought I was the man in the area, but inside was a little broken, scared boy. So along with all this, I met some, some crazy, some delightful, not so delightful characters on my journey. And I felt safe around some of these people, you know, the, the, the bigger the reputation you had, the better it was. Mm-hmm. If I um, also drink and anything else and that lifestyle give me courage to get into things that I shouldn't have got into. Crime was a, a thing, you know, and um, there was lots of drugs involved. There was lots of violence. There was lots of things that went on that should not have gone on because they weren't really a part of my journey. But when I was drinking, they were, and it, it was a part of it, you know. So in um, in 2000, and, and then throughout all this time, you know, I met a beautiful woman, Sally, who I was with for quite a number of years, and I had two beautiful children with Sally. I disregarded all of that, you know, because I thought that alcohol was more important. I didn't realize that all of that was more important than, than a family life. And they were just getting in the way of my drinking. But, you know, I, I knew that I was banging trouble. By the time I was 34 years old, she had had enough of me, kicked me out. And uh, and I was I was broke. I was absolutely broke. I was drinking in the morning to stop the shakes. I couldn't get to work. I couldn't drive. I, you know, I was I was just banging trouble. And that's because I just constantly used a substance to change the way I felt all the time. Always to change the way I felt, to get me out of myself because I didn't like feeling myself. Wow. And, by the time, but but the biggest thing that happens to anybody that has any sort of addictions or alcoholism or anything like that is when they're using it to change the way they feel, they become physically dependent on it and it gets worse, never better. But what happens is that what I was using, which was alcohol, was my drug of choice, it stopped working. So it no longer got rid of all that and it all starts to come up. So you panic and you drink more and you and it all starts to rise in you and that's when your head is going to explode. You can't cope, you know, so suicidal thoughts come in. I'm a, I, can't, I can't say I lost count the amount of times I've tied a rope to the banisters and thought to myself, I've got to do it, you know, because I can't go on like this. I couldn't live with drink. I couldn't live without it. I tried to stop everything. And I mean, I didn't physically tie the rope up there, but in my mind, I was visualizing myself hanging. Who would find me? Who would find, who would give a shit if they found me? You know, that sort of thinking, that real low rock bottom thinking. And it's sad to think that if I was to kill that person back then, I'd have been killing the wrong person because the real Tony's sitting here right now. You know that, you know, so anybody that I say that it was ever going to be contemplating suicide or anything, please think about it because that person that's telling you to do that is not the person you can be because that's what happened to me, you know, and I, I've heard that story quite a few times. People hit that rock bottom, but you know, they're too scared to do it. And thank God they did, you know, thank God they didn't. And uh, so in 2014, Around that time, after 20 years of absolute pure carnage, a lifestyle that was really fast, clubs, pubs, nightclubs, everything, you and name it, you know, it, it all went on. And I don't need to go graphically because if, I think everybody knows what sort of lifestyle I'm talking about. And, um, and it was crazy. But, you know, I was different to a lot of my friends. And, you know, when they grew up and started making families and buying houses and things and getting settled, I was still on a path of self-destruction. And 2014 came... Something happened in a pub in 2012 and, you know, something had to change within me, but I never knew how to change because I only ever drank with people that drank like me. I associated with people that drank. So I, I never had a vision of what it was like outside of that pub, that, 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 that lifestyle. I never had a vision. I, I didn't know that there was really another life beyond that. And in 2012, 
something happened in a pub and it was quite violent. And I remember watching it, witnessing it be a part of it. But what happened was I went back in the pub and I picked up my drink and I stood there and started talking to my mate. This was a Sunday night about something in work the next day. And something shifted in my mind and said, this is not right. You know, by this previous to this, there'd been certain things that had gone on that were really violent and certain lives had been lost. And so stuff that had gone on, you know, lots of deaths through the consequences of drinking drugs through, you know, through direct drinking drugs, you know, overdosing or, you know, died of alcoholism and whatever it was, lots of deaths through the consequences or direct use of drinking drugs to the point of there where I thought I'd had enough and I was looking for a way out, but I had no idea where to find it. I just knew that something had to change. And I stood at that bar and I turned around to my friend Excuse me. I turned around to my friend, Paul, who actually died a couple of years ago. He was drunk in a car going to have an argument with someone. He hit a tree in Epping Forest and died. You know, and I, it, it broke my heart because I knew, you know, we were like little brothers. I loved him to pieces, but he was on the same path as me that I got off. You know, there's, there's a train, I always like to say, and you can just get off at any stop if you want. It just depends on how far you get. But the last final destination is death when you're on that train, you know, and he was on that train. And I kept saying to him, you can get off that train, Paul. And he just, he, he didn't, he didn't make it. God bless him, you know. But um, I turned around to Paul after something had happened and I said to him, Paul, this isn't right. I shouldn't be standing here talking about work tomorrow with a pint in my hand like that just never happened. What happened, you know? And he was what's the matter with you? Get another beer in, is that, you know, it was that typical man, brutal mentality. Yeah, you're all right. You're, you know, you, know and, 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 and you could never talk about feelings in a pub, could you? You know, you can never go in there and go, you know what? They go, how's your day tone? I go, well, I'm feeling a bit restless, feeling a bit irritable, got a bit of anxiety. You know, you can't, you couldn't go in a pub with that. They go, how's your day tone? I go, yeah, cushy, bruv, get us a beer, sweet. You know, it was like that. Yeah, go on, get us a, and they go, oh, if you went in the pub and you said you had a bad day, they'd go, yeah, yeah, well, just, you know, there's a pint of Stella and go and stick a line of that up your nose. That'll sort you out. You know, that was the man's way of talking and dealing with things back then. Mm. I turned around to Paul that day and I said to him, Paul, this isn't right. I can't do this no more. And I walked out of the pub and uh, and I never really went back to it, to be honest. I never really went back. But but what I did walk out with was myself and that that alcoholism and all of the shit that had gone on prior to that 20 years. You can't just put the drink down. It's not that straightforward. See, a lot of these professional places, they think, oh, do a drink diary and things like that. Well, I tell you what, if you've got that allergy, if you put a drink, one drink in you and you can't stop when you start, you try doing a drink diary. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And I'm not, if anyone's doing it, I'm really pleased. It's just my experience. It's not my, I'm not a professional. It's, it's an experience, you know? Yeah. And um, so I was, so, so, so I was in a pub. Yeah. And, and when I walked out there, I walked out with all those, those feet and, and basically the carnage, the baggage of my past hanging on my back. And it was like a massive rock in a rucksack and I couldn't, but I knew I had to stop drinking. Long story of it short was I met another woman and she took me into her home up in Colchester because I thought if I can just get away from my home where I lived, that pub, the other, all the wrongans that I drank with, which some of them are lovely people, you know, still friends now, but all these people that I drank with, but I always blame the outside world. I never, I, I've learned that it was an internal job. It's an inside job, not an outside job. Nothing on the outside can fix my broken insides. There's not anything out there. Do you get me? There's nothing out there because I spent so much time trying to buy things, this, that, and the other, trying to fix my internals with external stuff. And I I walked out of that pub and, and I knew that something had changed. This woman, she took me into her house and I had this brief period relationship with her where actually she really did help me. And 
And what happened there was uh, that's when I first ever identified myself to someone else that, you know, I had this bad drink problem because I thought it was just the place I needed to get away from. If I could just change my lifestyle, I'd be all right. And maybe I could just control my drinking. But it just went on to realise that actually if I didn't have one drink, I wouldn't get drunk. So I could put the drink down. But I always say that your alcoholism is two sides of it. You've got alcohol, then you've got the isms. If you put the alcohol down, you're still left with the alcoholic and the isms. And that's when they got the crazy head on. It was like my head was like full up with seagulls, you know, just this noise. And like a washing machine head, you know, when just things just keep going round in your head over and over again. And you just want to scream because you can't shut your head up. It just is on you. It doesn't stop. I feel like that's that's a really it's a really powerful metaphor or analogy that you're providing there. And it's almost making me feel like linking the one you were giving about having this backpack of the things you're bringing. If that's like a backpack of your dirty laundry and that laundry is constantly now spinning in your head all the time and it's bombarding you when you have it sounds like you reach this point almost if we're transitioning into this moment of self-discovery where you now face the person who you've become or who you've been all these years. And now you genuinely see it and have to articulate it to someone. Cause I think you've, you've, I mean, wow. The, your story and journey so far, just phenomenal. And thank you so much also for sharing it. I mean, I think there's a lot there for people to take away from that childhood voice. A lot of us have and how we see ourselves while we're young and the way that we sometimes unwarranted, we tell ourselves we don't belong and we act up, even though no one has told us to act up or behave a certain way, there seem to be these default things that we do in order to fit in. And it's often, I feel, because we don't have a, a script or a rule or anything like that, and we just do what we think everyone else wants to see. And often it's unfortunately not the most beneficial thing and this theme of numbing and alcohol shall we say is say a numbing agent but there are many things a lot of us do to numb ourselves from our experiences or the world or the rejections we faced whether that's reading a book eating whatever it is for some people you, you've I, th- I feel like you've, you've touched on something great there and the environment you're in you're like a fish in water you're going to the pub, you're doing all these things, you're not addressing emotions, you're not actually addressing anything else going on. And even the people around you aren't, unless sometimes you get to this point, which is where you seem to have arrived to, where you come to the realization and you see the opportunities there to leave that environment and try and make a change in it. It almost hits you like you see yourself in the mirror for the first time. I'm sorry, I just, I mean, there's also this Jim Rohn quote, which is a powerful one as well. And I feel like he says, we often make change. I think, I think I'm getting this right. Let me double check. We generally change ourselves for one of two reasons, inspiration or desperation. And I feel like at the moment we're at your point of desperation and I'm sure we'll get to the inspiration first and I'm sorry to jump in. Please carry on. No, no, no. I, I called it a gift. That's exactly what we called it, a, a gift of desperation. It was a gift to be that desperate. I couldn't go on the way I was. I was sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. I was sick and tired of putting this face on that was a joker, but I was the joker that became the joke in the end. Do you know what I mean? So I become the joke. 
You know, people, one, one minute they're laughing with me, next thing they're laughing at me because I was a broke man. And, and unfortunately, in this day and age, some people find that, you know, humorous, don't they? You know, someone's been all right, and then all of a sudden they're like down their luck, like, eh, and it, it, you, you become the, the topic of the joke, and that's what happens. And I left, I left, um, oh, where was we? Yeah, I, I, so I met this woman, and, and basically what happened with her was I, I was, I done what I call a geographical. If I could just get away from her, if I can just get away from the pub, if I can just get away from that town, if I don't mix with him, if I don't drink here, everything would be okay. But the problem is there is you, when you do a geographical, you take yourself with you. So if you've got that internal broken problem, right, and um, that malady, it's a spiritual malady. If you've got a spiritual malady within you, which is a which is a mind thing, it's you know they're constantly telling you no good and stuff, then um. You're, you're never going to get better by moving away because you just take it with you. And that's it. So all it is, is you will just tear down another town. You'll just tear down another person. You'll just tear down another place. Whichever it is, it will, it will, it will bring you down again. You know? So I was talking about this as an outside in job. You know, I, I realized that, that what happened was I would spend a bit of time sober um, without, without a drink. But with with so much carnage, and it was the bag that I was carrying of the past that I never, I could never drop, I could never let go because I didn't know I needed to, you know. Because far, far as I was concerned, that was that was just, you know, that was me. That's what that's what what it was about. And uh, but this woman that I was with, she soon recognised that I had this drink problem, and she got me some help. And I went to my first meeting. I went to an AA meeting in in uh, 2012. And what happened in 2012 there was it was the first time I'd reached out for any help because for me, being the big stage character that I was and this big I am, it was very difficult for me to say that I was broke. But it was quite clear to a lot of people I was. But in my mind, see, an ego is what I believe is, um, who says it? Um, Wayne Dyer, I think, says it. He says it's a mind-made false sense of self. So it's basically what you think others see you as. People could see I was broke, but I would think that they thought I was still the man. You know, so how could I tell them that I needed help? But I finally found this place, and it was Alcoholics Anonymous that changed it for me. And I went to this, um, I went to a meeting in 2012 in Colchester, and I identified through talking with others that I wasn't the only person to have ever gone through this. And through that, there were people in this room that said that they were eight years without a drink, 20 years without a drink. And I didn't think that was possible because I couldn't go 20 minutes. So I didn't think it was possible. But something said to me that, you know, these people look well. They, 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 it sounds like they were where I was. How the hell did they get to where they are if they're telling the truth? Because bearing in mind, whatever come out of my mouth was, was a lie back then. It was rubbish, bullshit, fabricated. You know, it was a story. So I didn't trust anyone else because I thought everything that come out of their mouth was a liar, fabricated, bullshit story. Do you know what I mean? So I I never, um, yes, I didn't believe them. But another gift was that evening. They said in this meeting that try not to drink too much and, you know, keep coming back to these meetings. But I identified and I knew then that there was a seed of recovery pl planted. But that evening I, I tried not to drink. And because my body was so physically dependent on alcohol, I went into a, an alcoholic seizure in, in, a, in, a, in the house. And the, the ambulance was called and, and they took me into Colchester General Hospital. And do you know what? I was relieved to lay in that hospital bed and to say to myself, this is all you've wanted is to get all that crap out of your system, to detox properly and never have to drink again. 
But, you know, that's not the thing, see, because you can physically come off the, the drink and the drugs on anything, you you know, even if it's food. You know, if it's drink, drugs, gambling, you can physically get yourself off of this stuff. And I physically come off the alcohol. But what, I, what I've learned is that there wasn't just the physical recovery. I needed the mental recovery. And the mental recovery for me, after 72 hours, physically, my body wasn't rattling, shaking for a drink. The Librium had worked. They, de they detox me. They give you vitamin D or B or whatever it is. It's yellow. They drip it off you. And, you know, and every every day or so they come out and tell you to hold your hands out and they check your hands to see if they're shaking. And as soon as you stop shaking, you're out of there. But now, what do they do? They send me out with the baggage, don't they, still? There's no, they haven't cleared me baggage out because they, they, they don't know how to clear that out. But I walk out with that heavy rucksack and that seagull in my head still. <laughs> But with this burning desire, never, ever to drink again. Never. So now I'm going to be brand new, right? Never going to touch a drop of drink. And here I am. So I goes and tells everyone I'm never drinking again. And I put myself under immense pressure. I joined all the gyms. I thought, right now I've got to join a gym because I've never, you know, I've never been in a gym in my life. I was so self-conscious. But I would run on these running, running machines with my hood up. And one day I'm running away so fast on this running machine that my nose started bleeding, right? And I thought, oh my God, you know, I was insane. I started changing all my diets around from like white bread to brown bread. I had no idea what I was doing. I just thought that this is what you had to do. And all these shakes and protein stuff and all the pills and everything from Wellmen and whatever I could take, I was doing it in the morning. It took me an hour to get out of the house in the morning because I was super sober. But what happened for me was, I know now that my, my alcoholism is an illness of the mind, okay? Physically, I'm not drinking, but my head then keeps telling me, you're doing well, Tone. You haven't had a drink for 72 days, 73 days, 74 days. <laughs> now, is that if I'm constantly thinking of drinking, am I really sober? Am I really sober? Do you know what I mean? Mm. So if, so what happens, because I'm still carrying that big bag and, and that weight of all that crap, from the past and all the resentment, the fears, the frustrations, the anxieties and everything. But I'm smiling again still without a drink in me. I start to go insane because I think that everybody is the problem because it can't be me because I don't drink anymore because I've done no help. I've, I've got, I've got no help for myself. I've not, I've not cleared any of the wreckage from my past and I've, I've just continued to go on what I call a dry drunk. And then it's only a matter of time before the insanity kicks in in your mind, knowing full well that if I have a drink, I can't stop. My mind says to me, I ended up really miserable, really down in the dumps, really depressed, really. But and my mind says to me, do you know what I sort this out? Why don't you have a drink? And I think, well, yeah. And then I start fantasizing over parties that were 20 years before. And I start thinking, yeah, have a drink, go to a party, you'll have a great life. But you completely forget all of the carnage that has brought you to that point there and you think back 20 years before when you used to enjoy drinking you know mm. it's mm. the same so you pick up a drink and it kicks off that whole process again but this time it's 10 times worse it's like your body wants to make up for all of the lost drinking all the lost time you know i went about six months without drinking but i got arrested a few times in that six months because my mind i was so angry i was so it's all that depression as well isn't it untreated yeah. untreated mm. you know completely yeah. untreated depression everything you know i was suffering really really suffering i mean I, 
you know, first and foremost, like, let me commend you in terms of, you know, embarking on that journey. And I really like the analogy you used about um, getting off the train and getting on a, you, getting on your own train and making your own tracks. Um, for me, how, how, I, how, how I see it is that, um, again, when it comes to especially drugs as well, it's like it's hard to understand the addiction unless you've actually experienced it, one. Two, it's also, um, it's not the drug that makes you addicted. It's, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's the, 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 the need to escape that reality that you kind of have. So my, uh, behind that, my, my biggest question is, what was that turning point that first led you to, you know, addiction or what, what was your mental state what was the influencing factors as you know was it the people around you was it uh, someone significant i'm really intrigued to understand that part of your journey you know so am i so am i and i've spent <laughs> so many years scratching my head hoping hoping to find something i could pinpoint my alcoholism to mm. But there isn't anything. There isn't. It just means that somewhere along the line, I've enjoyed the effect that alcohol had on me. And then eventually, I drank so much of it that my body became physically addicted and I didn't deal with anything in life. And then I'm left with that mental state of mind that tells me, under every condition, have a drink. But because I never emotionally grew, I'll tell you that's another good thing that's, that's, to, to bring up is, if I was 15 years old, 35 years old, I stopped drinking, but I drank alcoholically. Really, you know, I drank a lot from 15 to, to 20. If I never grew emotionally from 35, from, 50, from 15 to 35, how old emotionally am I at 35 years old? I'm 15. So when I put the drink down at 15 years old, not am I only left with that baggage of all the crap and the carnage and the and the, and the the, the, the shame of the stuff that I've done and seen and the fears, the anxieties, the depressions and everything. I've also only got the, the, the emotions of a 15 year old to deal with it because I've never dealt with them. And how do you, how, how, how do you deal with it now then? So going on to that now is, uh, I'm just going to say a bit, little bit more on that, what you said, because it's such an interesting point of what, what, if there was a, a, a predominant point really where, which, which, led me to that and and i've some people always think to themselves you know oh if i wasn't abused as a child if only i had a mother and a father if i wasn't just brought up with my dad if only this it's but they're outside issues you know they're just they're just some of those things as well as circumstances they're not really um they're not why you are they contribute to it because they contribute to that low self-esteem they contribute to those feelings inside you know the low self-worth especially is a big one but they all contribute to that feeling of why that drink has an effect on you. You know, like that, 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 where it gives you that ease and comfort, you know? So if you've got all that restless, irritable discontent from something like from a childhood memory or something like that, then yeah, but that doesn't make you an alcoholic. What makes me an alcoholic is that when I pick up a drink, I can't stop when I start. I have no control over when I start and I have no control over when I stop. Then that's completely different. If you take away the physical allergy, which I talk about when I can't stop when I start, I'd be left with that mental obsession, but I could live with that because if it tells me to have a drink and I don't have, 
and I had the ability to stop, it wouldn't be a problem. But the fact that I can't stop when I start, that is really the main problem because I just keep doing it. Mm. The problem centers in my mind, not and my body. Do you get what I mean? So it's quite it's quite deep, but it's quite simple to understand that, you know, that it's a physical allergy and a mental obsession. The mental obsession tells me it'd be a great idea to have a drink. The allergy controls my body and tells me that I want and craves for more. I stop drinking, the cravings stop, but the mental obsession starts to say to me, this time it'll be different tone. You could just have one, you'll be fine. I take one drink, starts off the craving and I can't stop again. And all this time I'm doing that, I'm never growing. So I went into um, a recovery program. I had two years from 2012 to 2014 of toying with maybe if I just drank Guinness, <laughs> maybe, maybe if I only drank on Fridays, maybe if I, you know, and I had all of this stuff going on, but in, in, in the process of this causing more dramas in my life because I was untreated, my mind was so sick, so, so sick. But I asked for help. And, and what, what helped me the most was a guy reached out to me and he's, a, he's like a 12 step mentor, if you like. And he took me through the process of the 12 steps. And um, a 12 step recovery program for me absolutely changed my life without a shadow of a doubt. Now, it was, there's 12 steps for a reason. But the idea of it is, is to recognize your powerlessness, to know that one drink is never going to be enough. And that if you put one drink in, you can't stop when you start. There is the, the 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 willingness to believe in a power greater than me. It's not a religious thing, not at all, but just a, a belief that that I'm not I'm not the power. I need to believe in a power greater than me. Although I'm quite comfortable with any religion, with any of spiritual beliefs, you know, I pray every day, but only as a thanks, just to say thank you for the sober day yesterday. Please help me to be of maximum service to others today. You know, I sort of I ask for how I can be of service. Then, so it's a, a belief greater than myself. Then there's a personal house cleaning, okay, which is, well, they call it step four. It's uh, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And now when I talk about that big rucksack on my back, this is how I got rid of it. I sat down with this guy and I wrote absolutely everything down from my resentments to my fears to everything. And what I did was I looked at, so my uh, resentments are the big ones. Resentments are the ones where, to refill something. So if he'd done that, or if I'm going to get him for this, and you know, that constant where you, where you, when you replay something in your mind and you refeel it. So if I think about a guy that I fell out with in, in 2010, and as I'm talking about it, I'm starting to get a bit angry and I want to punch him on the nose. That's a resentment. It's untreated. It's not dealt with. And I'm carrying that along with all the thousands of other things in my, in my time of all the things that have been done to me, that shouldn't have been done and that sort of thing. Fears, huge one. If I'm fearful of stuff, I'm going to create myself lots of anxiety, lots of depression, lots of, you know, fears. But a lot of fears are false, you know. Fear, false evidence appearing real. That's what I like. You know, that's 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 where it's at. So fears. And I learned that if I'm in resentment, I'm normally in the past. My head's in the past, always. I'm always back. Oh, if he hadn't done this, I should have done that. He should have done that. She should have done this. You know, that, that constant fear of uh, resentment. If I'm in the future, it's always a fear of something. Oh, what if this happens? What if that happens? What if... But all the time I'm there, I'm never present in the moment now. And that's quite a common thing. I know there's lots of psychiatrists and things like that and psychologists and 
and all those big sort of um, speakers, they often mention about being in now Eckhart Tolle, you know, the power of now. But there's so much truth in that, mm. that, you know, the past and the past and the, and the future and the future. And if you're worried about the future and you're living in the past, you're never really living in the, in the moment. But it's easier said than done when you're carrying the baggage. So I wrote down a list of all this stuff that I did and I looked at it all. I looked at everything, everything that I thought was bad that happened to me, everything that I'd done to everyone else, everything. I just, I just kept spilling it out, pages and pages and pages and pages. But the most important part of it was, is to look at my part in it. So I needed to, I needed to look at my part so I could wipe some of them off because a lot of things that I was resentful at, I had such a big part to play in it. I had a huge part to play in it. So where was I at fault? So then when I look at where I was at fault, I have to look at what character defect was in that to put me in, in, the, in the first situation. And a lot of my character defects, you know, selfishness, everything I'd done was doing it because of my own selfish reasons or my own selfish pains. So I looked at all of the character defects that were coming up in this and it was helped. I was helped through this process. And then when I looked at the character defects, selfish, self-centered, there was um, greed, there was lust. There's, there is, and there's lots of character defects that that caused a lot of all these problems that I was carrying around. And I was able to let a lot of it go. It sounds very deep, but it's not. It's quite a straightforward process. Fears. Well, when I looked at my fears, you know, a lot of them were make believe. I was worried about things I didn't even need to worry about, but I was still carrying it all around up in my head, always. You know. Um, then there was things like. Um, a list of amends. I made a list of all the people throughout my list of the, in the, the four, throughout all the people that I that I that I felt that I made that I'd harmed, because I had a lot of shame. I shouldn't have done that. I felt sick, you know, physically physically hurting someone. That weren't really me. I didn't want to do that to that guy, but I was with the boys. You know, I had to. I, could, I couldn't be spoken to like that. I had to do it. I was pressured. Do you know what I mean? But when I walked away, I felt sick, and I carried that. But what I do, I drink push it down, get rid of it till the next one, forget about it. But it don't go, it's in you. So I made this list of amends and I made some powerful, powerful amends. I said to these people that, you know, I'm on this discovery. I really need to, I need to, um, I need to make, I need to make this amends and I need to put it right. I said, I'll put right what, what has happened in the past in order for me to live sober today. Now that amends is not necessarily for them. This is to free me. You know, in a way, it's a selfish act, but you'll be surprised at the, the results you get from them because some of these people are carrying your resentment. When I see him, he's going to get it. Mm. So they are then like, oh, my God, well, I wish you really well. So it's two-sided. So it's emptying your So bag. the amends process. Uh, mm, so I, I, I went through the amends process. And then the continuation of this, okay? So there's what we call like a step 10. And that is that is a continuation. Now, step 10, 11 and 12 is where I live today. I, I, I've done all the, the past stuff, but then to maintain my sobriety, I live in what we call steps 10, 11 and 12. See, step 10 for me is, a, is continue to take personal inventory. So I continue to look at my daily behaviours. Not too hard. Don't have to overanalyze it or anything, but just watch for selfishness. Watch for where that low self-esteem comes back in. Watch for, you know, and I, I write stuff down as well. I have friends in the recovery because talking for me is the biggest thing. You can see, I, can't, I don't shut up. I'm, I'm, I'm a good talker. But, <laughs> but, um, but, but it's very important that I, I'm, I'm comfortable enough now to say, 
listen, Shay, I'm having a bad day, brother. I'm feeling a bit anxious, yeah? I don't know why, but have a chat. You know, that really helps because one person talking to another, let's drop the ego. Let's drop the man talk. Let's, let's, get, let's get down to the nitty gritty because men struggle. Yeah, it's like what I always say is that, you know, um, an issue shared is, you know, an issue halved kind of thing. So, you know, and the same rain falls on all of us all. But from when that instant when you're, you know, thinking it's just a new issue, I, I, I can't share it. I can't, you know, share it with anyone. No one's not going to be able to resonate or understand what I'm coming from. So the fact that you're, you know, speaking about it and doing all those all these things and not being a prisoner of your addiction, you know, can relate so much. And I I think even as well as, as a man, you also have this facade to like, you know, be, you know, strong as an ox and not show emotions and feelings. Sure. And that's, that was pretty much um, when I got touch on the ego, you know, what I want other, what I want other guys to think I am. Do you know what I mean? But that's, that's irrelevant now because I'm comfortable with myself. I have up and, down, up and down days and I talk about that step 10 where I have to continuously monitor myself. So, but life's about having good days and bad days sometimes. If it, was all, if it was all good, you'd get bored of it being good, wouldn't you? You know, you have to have bad days to appreciate the good. So I always think that this stuff will pass. You know, this, anything will pass. Whatever the problem is, I tell you, I was at work the other day and some guy said to me, oh, my God, I can't believe this. I'm going through this right now. This is terrible. And I said, let me ask you a question. You're going through this really bad problem, yeah? I said, yeah. He said, yeah. I said, I said is, this the, is this the only really bad problem you've ever had? And he went, no. I said, well, tell me about some of the other really bad problems you've had where you was feeling this way. So he went, uh, I said, you know, I know that I've had really bad problems, but the truth of it is I forgot what those problems were because they go. I said, yeah. stop worrying about it because it will pass. <laughs> Perspective <laughs> as well. So anyway, so yeah, I continue to, to try and maintain my sobriety. Yeah. Step 11, I, I like to practice mindfulness, meditation, because I'm very fast. My, my lifestyle still is a little, although I've moved from Essex down to the coast now to try and slow myself down. You know, I've got the great outdoors here which is, you know, I live on the coast now. I've got the, the beaches just behind me. It's absolutely stunning here. And I've got the South Downs at the back. I do a lot of running as well. And you can do the running over the South Downs. And I've got, I've got endless possibilities for running different places. It's, it's amazing. Same as anywhere, really. But it's just nice to have a... Takes you away from, you know, all the other things of, you know, that fast-paced... Yeah. yeah, definitely. I mean, I work as a project manager in construction. So it's quite a fast-pressured, you know... Um, industry to be in there is a lot of pressure so sometimes you know but i've learned now that if i write everything down at work i shut the book at the end of the day and i don't take it home with me because that's really important the pen and paper is one of the most powerful tools you can ever have but people don't use it enough now because they spend too much time on their phones and too much time on the laptops and stuff but a pen and paper is the best tool so if you've got a problem write it down look at it on paper because half the time it half sizes it because you took it out your mind onto the paper and you're looking at it so I used to have problems sleeping because I'd overthink things. So I put a little pad next to my bed. And if I woke up through the night and it was one of those thoughts that I couldn't get out of my head, I would just write it in the pad and say, stop thinking about it now because you can think about that tomorrow. And then it would help me back to sleep. I don't know why, but it did. It used to work. But so at work, I, I, I shut the book and I, I, 
I finish work and, you know, I rarely think about work after work now. Mm. But sometimes, you know, some days when you've had a stressful day, it's nice to go for a run. I do a lot of other activities. You know, I've got a paddleboard which I go out onto the, onto the sea with. I love that. You know, just a walk. How good is a walk? I never thought I'd ever walk. Never, <laughs> ever. You know, the funny thing is in 2012, I couldn't run a bath. I've run multiple marathons now. You know, that's incredible. That's absolutely what, incredible. what was the first marathon? Uh, London 2016. Wow. How was that? Was it? Well, what an experience, you know, just to be, oh my God. I mean, you had your name on your shirt and I'm running along. I ran it for a, uh, um, for a charity called Action and Addiction. And, uh, and it was because obviously I just looked for a charity I could run for and that came up and I thought, wow, you can't get closer to your heart than that. Spoke to them, told them about my struggles and I raised about £3,800 for them. So it was absolutely amazing. But to get everyone, and everyone's clapping, you're, you're, you're carried around that course. I don't know if any of you guys have ever run a marathon or been done the London Marathon, but if you haven't, I suggest you do it because it's an absolute experience of a lifetime. So I've done that in 2016 and 2018. I ran that. Other ones, you know, but long distance was not really an issue to me. Once uh, I started to run, I was like Forrest Gump. I couldn't stop. You know? <laughs> I just ran and ran and ran. <laughs> I kept on running. <laughs> I, 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 I really love that. I was going to just say, like, from when you met, you first mentioned sort of going in, uh, having to be treated, them checking that you're shaking, coming out of that, becoming super sober and almost discovering this vacuum that, some of us find when we fall out of love or lose someone we love or something like that, there's sometimes a vacuum that just doesn't seem to be able to be filled, but it's often we're searching for the right thing that's going to fill it because uh, like, and there was a powerful phrase you said, you, you said you were suffering and it really adds weight to the bag you're talking about carrying when when we think about someone just suffering and you you've been suffering all this while all this time you're sort of say drinking and doing things that from the outside would look like fun it's like no it's not fun it's it's just adding more weight to me and there's all these if only things uh, this is this is deep stuff. I I love how I think we've come to that inspiration side here, because I think there's another quote now by I think it's James Baldwin where he says, "Not everything faced can be changed, but nothing can be changed until it's faced." And yeah, at this yeah, point yeah. in your journey, it seems like you've truly started to face everything. It's not the scary. I've I've just seen myself for the first time. If you're running a marathon like the London Marathon and you're fundraising, you are not just facing yourself, but you're presenting yourself to other people and having to tell other people about these experiences and things at, at that point, I think. Uh, another analogy, which, which you said fear, okay, yeah. right? And that's uh, you said about facing So fear, face everything and run, <laughs> or face everything and recover. Ah, nice. Love that. Love that. Yeah. Or face everything and recover. And that's what I had to do. I had to face everything and recover. I had to work from the inside out because I was carrying it and I just couldn't, I couldn't drop it. And in the end, you know, once I, once I worked this process, 
I managed to drop it. But the, the beautiful part of this whole process that I talked about, this, this step process for me, was that um, step 10 was the, uh, was the continued to watch for my, my defects of character because they will come up. And then step 11 is prayer and meditation to improve that contact that I have with what I call my higher power. But step 12 is the most important step of all is having had a spiritual awakening as the result of the steps, we carry this message to others and practice these principles in all our affairs. Now, that means to me, that guy that took me through this, he had had his own sufferings. He'd been through this himself and he freely took me through this work and changed my life. So the only condition, if you like, was asked of me was that I would do the same to others. So I spend free time when I can, you know, I don't know. It's not a, it's not, it's not a full-time thing or anything. And, uh, but I'm always there helping other people that, that, are, that are suffering with alcoholism, some people with drug addiction, but you know, I, so I take people through that same process. And, but what that does then is it constantly reminds me of where I come because where I come from, because if you remember, I said, it's an illness of the mind and that little voice in my head, could at any time still say to me, this time, Tony, it'll be different. You've been nearly seven years without a drink now. Maybe one won't hurt. Have a celebrate. You know, so I still have to watch it because I will always be an alcoholic. And I've got no issue with that. No issue with that at all. Because if I never, if I wasn't an alcoholic, I wouldn't have the amazing life I have today because I understand now. I understand what affects me. If I didn't have that allergy that's, you know, with the drinking, I, I know I can't drink safely, but... I'm glad that I've learned that because it made me look at myself so much now so that I'm growing in a way now that I never would have gone because I'd have just carried on drinking. I'd have just carried that bag around with me. You know, if it never hit that bottom, I would have just carried on. Just It would have been a miserable existence. And it's so sad to see that some people are living like that now. I see people. I have a brother who lives on the streets. You know, he's in. He's, he, he's been messaging today. And, um, but... You know, he hasn't had that gift of desperation and I can't give him what I've got. I can't give him it. It's, you know, it's, it's, I, I can only be, like, we say it's attraction, not promotion. I tell him, I know, he knows where I got sober. He knows how I got sober. And if he wants it, it's there, it's available for him, but he, he has to have, want it, you know, and, and he's, he's ringing me from Waterloo today, you know, in this cold berries out on the street. And that's his, that's his choice as such. I mean, he's, he suffers from mental illness, definitely. But unfortunately, when you see these people on the streets like my brother, yeah, people just nose up and you know, he's a drug addict or he's an alcoholic. It's far from that. Because you take that alcohol away from Billy and he's left with that big bag that he's carrying around. Do you know what I mean? And it's sad. But their mind is just not, it just doesn't allow them to, to admit complete defeat and say that, you know, recognise their problem. And I was so lucky when I stood in that pub that I had that psychic change that said to me, this is not right. That was the turning point for me to walk away. But then it was the start of a big journey of, of recovery. And, you know, that leads me now to where, you know, so since I've been sober, I've traveled everywhere. You know, I've been all over the world. I love it. I absolutely love it. Um, you know, I've, I, I, we spoke earlier about being a father. My goodness. Yeah. You know, what an absolute. Oh, my, I've got two older children from my first marriage. Uh, Connor's 23 now, Abby's 20, and I have a beautiful relationship with them. They grew up, but they didn't get to the best of me when they were young. And I, you know, I'm quite happy to to give credit to their mum why they're so why they're so turned out such good children, you know, because I wasn't there for them. I wasn't present whilst I was drinking and running around thinking I was that little plastic gangster in Essex. I was I was out in the madness. So, but luckily, 
you know, through through my experience now, they can see that I'm making a better effort, especially with my other little one, Georgie. She's three years old and what a what an absolute gem, you know, but they're all beautiful. And, uh, but it's just it's nice to be able for me to be able to do it again because I held a lot. I, I did hold a lot of guilt over, you know, what I should have done with my other children. You know, and I know it wasn't that bad for them because I wasn't there as much. But sometimes not being present is worse than being present, I think, you know. So um, it's, um, to, be, to be, yeah, to be a, a present father now to my little Georgie. Being at the, being at the part, I'm not a slave to anything. You know, I was a slave to my own emotions. I was a slave to alcohol. And uh, I was a slave to misery and depression. I was a slave to it all, right? So there I am. I used to push them over the park on the swings and I just never wanted to be there because the alcohol was dragging me back to the pub. But now I'm a free man. I can stand there for as long as I want, smiling, just enjoying the moment. And that's, that is a priceless gift, absolute priceless gift. So, you know, being a father is, is incredible. You know, I'm a good son now. I'm a good son. My mum don't have to lay on the pillar of a night and wonder if, you know, what I'm up to, where I'm going and, you know. Where you're going to end up. Yeah, where I'm going to end up. Bow me out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, she doesn't have to worry. I'm a, I'm a brother, a good brother. You know, I'll be there for any of my brothers and sisters. Mm. We're all on our own journeys, all on our own paths. We've got our own issues, definitely. And, uh, you know, there's, some, there's, there's all different sorts of, uh, I've got one brother, Darren. He lives up in Ipswich and, you know, there's a bit of food, food addiction in the family, like someone's obsessive with food. And there's definitely a bit more alcoholism in the family without a shadow of that. You know, there's OCDs, that's another disorder. There's all sorts, you know, but, you know, we're all, we're all good. We, we've got each other's backs. Just to, uh, so, sorry to interrupt, just to briefly, you know, feed into what you were saying, um, how you said that, you know, the pen is such a sharp or pencil is such a sharp instrument. It's like there's this saying that says that a blunt pencil is sharper than a blunt mind. So it's that thing of writing it down and you've got to visually see it to, you know, what the, what, what the mind sees, it believes. And, you know, you carried that through. So, you know, really do. And that was like a nice antidote to kind of, you know, bring you through that whole journey of, um metamorphosis you might as well say and one thing that really you know does resonate with with me with what you just said at the end is um being a father because you know quite similar you know a lot of the things you said I can resonate with in terms of me being younger and the things I used to get up to the crowds I used to be with and what that kind of built me to be but at that time I didn't even know who I was and it wasn't until I had my daughter now when I had my daughter I went through a transition one I moved out of London because I believe at this at the same time you are the crowd you keep and being in London there's just you know so much influence left right and center so once I took myself out of that and I put myself because I've also been a prisoner within my own mind. And I think it's safe to say that everyone has their own, you know, broken kind of prisoner kind of moments. So as soon as she came into my life, everything completely changed. I changed as a person who I was to everybody around me, to my friends, my family, everything, you know. Um, And I even started to feel emotions that I never felt before. And when I started to feel that, I started to 
spread those emotions to everybody else in my family, even just the things of saying, you know, I love you. And I was having this conversation with my siblings previously. And, you know, if it wasn't me just, you know, injecting that into my mother and saying, oh, I love you, because without realizing, we realized that she never said that to us. So we didn't even know how to have these emotions. So what I really want to understand from your point of view is what kind of impact has has it made for you being a father? Wow. I mean, there's, there's a couple of things really that, that have been a little bit challenging. One is that when I first got sober and I met Sarah, who is my baby mother, um, I was still in, I'll always be in recovery, but I was, I was, I was very weak in a way of like, you know, very needy. And, uh, and Sarah obviously had her own issues as well. And we met like a little trauma bond, really. And the, the most difficult part for me was, was um, we split up in 2000 and 2018. And it was to accept that, that it wasn't going to be a little family that I'd fantasized over and that I was going to be a single parent and not see Georgie every day of the week. But to make sure that every minute that I spent with her, I wasn't flicking through my phone. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not doing other things because the time is so precious that I spend with her that I want to be present in every single moment of it. And I try my best to stay present for her. Another thing that I've learned as well through this is that I know that I said I'm not religious and, and, I, and I've got nothing, no, nothing, you know, religion's absolutely fine. But when I mention the word God, it's just a, it's just a, it's a word for me. And uh, we're all God's children in a way. And because I believe in the power of the universe, whatever we got here and, you know, we're all God's children. And I think that sometimes we can pull the reins too tight on children. Don't do this and don't do that. And don't, you know, if we're in a little restaurant and they're being too noisy, Shh, people on the other table, Shh, don't stop, you know. And I think to myself, I, I steered my own life into a direction, you know, and crashed heavily. And so have I really got the right to be steering her in a way and taking her will? So I, I don't want to make it sound too complicated, but what I try and do is let her be. I try and let her be. I tap her to the left if she's going to hurt herself somewhere on the left. You know what I mean? And I tap her to the right and if she's going to hurt herself to something on the right. But I let her be. I love it. And that is accepting her for everything she is. Because we can really... Be, I believe we can be too influential on children now. And I think that that can, it can create too much difficulty for them at young ages because they have the expectation, I shouldn't do this, I shouldn't do this. Do you know what I mean? I, so let them be, let them enjoy themselves, let them run off, let them jump in puddles, let them get muddy, let them, you know, just let, let her be. And that is really important. And when I let her be, she just seems to blossom into this little character that God intends her to be, not what I'm trying to force her to be. Because not everyone's going to be, I want her to be the best at whatever she does. But not everybody's going to be an academic. Not everyone's going to be a musician. Not everyone's going to be a footballer. But she'll be something. She'll be something, and that's for sure. Yeah. And I'll just, but she will, she will if I'm steering her all the time, she won't find what she naturally is 
is is supposed to be if that makes sense so let be you know live and let live that is definitely no, i totally uh that's an incredible no, way of putting it absolutely incredible way of putting it i think the key there is that she will always be her and as long as you love her not what she achieves and not what she does you can tell that she's going to grow up just into the happiest version and most fulfilled version of who she is also knowing that she is accepted there's a beautiful song by Marvin Gaye it's not the one you're thinking <laughs> <laughs> i knew it whole <laughs> piece of clay and he's a, i mean i know he had a complicated relationship with his father who ended up shooting him in the end but the song is called piece of clay and his whole message is everybody wants somebody to be their own piece of clay but we should especially the children leave them alone it's like stop criticizing your sons leave your daughters alone which is exactly what you're saying and when you see someone as a piece of clay when they're young especially for all of us if we're talking about self discovery and we've thought about how our own journey is unfolded we want to prevent them from making the same mistakes we want to stop them from going down a path we think will cause them issues later on but what we want is ultimately for them to grow up to be happy because we don't know what they're going to end up doing but it's so easy to think here's this piece of clay that i've brought into the world or that i have and i can shape it into what i know is amazing and everyone's going to see is amazing but in trying to shape it you will almost break it most times yeah because yeah. you yeah. don't know what form it's supposed to take no and also being a parent can be stressful if you're over worried about mm. what you expect them to do then you're also then putting pressure on yourself if they fail you fail because if you're trying to get them to do things they don't want to do because they don't want to do it they fail you're going to feel like you failed as a parent yeah because they've become your success object yeah of course yeah so let them be and you know what in that journey that we're here with them right this is our life too there's a really good film a really good film um very very basic sort of um production but it's by um, Wayne Dyer and it's called The Shift If anyone's not seen it, I suggest you, uh, you 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 watch it. And that's about several characters go to a retreat, and within this retreat, they're all trying to find themselves. It'll be really good, you know, appropriate for your 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 sort of um, your organisation, really. And um, they're they're trying to trying to find themselves. And they're I'll give you one example of a woman in there. There's a woman in there that's a mother, and a, they've got the perfect two point four children. They go family. They go to this retreat and um, to get away. But the, the part of it is, is that the woman is so busy being the mother and the wife that she doesn't know who she is. So she's just a wife. But that's not really the life she should be living. Is just being the mother and the and the wife. She has her own little things that she likes to do, like painting and stuff like that, you know. And it's a and it's about she could still be a mother and a, a wife, but don't just be the mother and the wife. because she's got to live too. There's a guy there that's so obsessed with money that he's just missing out on everything because he thinks money is his world and he's missing out. He's missing out. 
another guy there that's yeah he's a film producer yeah it's, it's a great film really good it's a real strong message in it really a real strong message it's called the shift if you ever get to watch men talk ubuntu movie um, night coming soon <laughs> netflix and chill yeah <laughs> <laughs> virtually virtually of course covid times <laughs> zoom it up zoom it up <laughs> yeah so uh, part for me as well i suppose in that whole journey is 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 the thing for sort of helping others and reaching out and you know having a community of people in 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 that, that suffer with the same sort of things as me as well so we can we can mentor each other and help each other you know when things are down but life isn't bad is it really and you know i suppose we're in the, we're in this situation at the moment in the covid and uh, we were speaking before the before we started before we started to record just a little bit of banter and warming up i suppose but we were just saying how's it affecting me now if i if i was sitting here this this whole covid situation and thinking to myself oh, you know what, there's a million people out of work, there's the country's going bust. I'm taking on the world's problems. I'm taking on the world's problems. And I'm guilty of doing that, taking on other people's problems and trying to carry their baggage. But what I have to do is let that go now and just be, just be still and know that this is my journey and that if I look at my life today, I still get to see my little Georgie. I spend time with her because I'm allowed to. I'm still going to work, so I'm very fortunate. And I mean this with the greatest respect to anybody else that's situation's different. I've, still, I've got a house. I live by the sea. I can get out. I can run. I can train. I can exercise. The pubs are closed, so that don't affect me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I spend far too much money on eating out luxury food, so I'm happy. You know, So really, the situation from me, but what I've also found is that I'm okay by myself. So there's a lot of people sitting out there on their own that are just probably doing this right now. Oh, my God, I can't cope. I'm on my own. But, you know, it's all right to be by yourself. It's not bad. I enjoy cooking myself a dinner because I can eat what I want. I'm not cooking because I'm cooking for someone else. And I like cooking. You welcome around, lads, when it's when this is all over. We'll, we'll get, have a good cook-up. I'll do a barbecue or something. Hold you to that. Oh, yeah. As soon as I mention barbecue, the, 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 <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and, uh, and I like cooking. So there's lots of things you can do at home, you know. I mean, I can see a guitar in the background behind Shay there. I play, play guitar myself. So I've been using the time to, you know, exercise my mind and my vocals because no one can hear me here. So. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of a lot to be said for keeping active when we can't be too active. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. You don't have to just be plunged into reading the garbage on social media, which I'm guilty of. I'm guilty of, but I pay for it when I do because I'll, I'll put it down and go away thinking about something I've read, which is garbage. I don't need to worry. Again, fear, false evidence appearing real. And then, uh, you know, so sitting with myself is uh, is something that I'm 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 happy now. Like after, I mean, on the 14th of February this year, I'll be seven years sober. I can't believe that. Do you know that? I can't believe it. Yeah, I couldn't, go, I couldn't so go seven minutes with my eyes open. It's, you know, it, but it is, but it's worth it. It's worth it. When you have the gifts of sobriety that I've got and the ability to help others, it's priceless. Absolutely priceless. And, you know, that brings me now to, again, where we met on that mountain that day. My friend who I was with, Big Ian, on a similar journey to me. 
And there we are, up on the mountain. We never would have met you guys. And here I am sitting with you. The only thing I had to offer you was a drink. You know what I mean? That's it. A drink and a couple of bar jokes. But here we are sitting here, sharing a bit of oh, our experience. You know, you did a great job there with your, with your, with your, you know, your, your charity and the work that you guys do. And, you know, and I, I loved it. I loved, absolutely loved it being up on that mountain with you guys. It was absolutely such an amazing experience because it, I had no expectations of it. I didn't even visualize what it was for. It happened so quickly. And next thing I'm standing there with you guys and we was having the banter and I loved it. <laughs> So you were so grateful we met you, man. You guys were hilarious. <laughs> I mean, you guys are a ball of energy. Like, I know. And well, he was, he was too much of energy, was he? He's 20 odd stone. I mean, he didn't have a lot of energy. <laughs> I've never seen someone rest so much going up a mountain. <laughs> <laughs> in that man's face he didn't stop you know he would just do another 20 meters and go and he yeah. knew he was getting to that that's mind over body that is yeah i think because physically he wasn't capable of that and i don't mean that with a great i mean that with no, great no, respect no, no. To facts, him. physically facts. he wasn't capable for walks with him where he couldn't get a mile without having to sit down and, and give up but he set his mind to that and he gritted his teeth with his two sticks and up he went and he weren't turning back I was concerned for him at one point. I thought, oh, my God, is he ever going to push this, you know? Gonna... <laughs> I said, if you ever look at um, the BFG by Roald Dahl, yes. there's a picture of the helicopters carrying one of the giants in a net. Yeah. You know, can you see it? <laughs> <laughs> you know saying, I'm just working on our record <laughs> uh, I bet you was beginning to think because I think when we got to the top there was even a helicopter that was you know, <laughs> flying pa past us you're thinking that yep just in time to bring him back down it was so hilarious like let's hijack this train and go up like I think when you're going up that mountain my cousin uh has shared a fantastic saying with me once which was uh, people are like tea bags you don't know how strong they are until they're in boiling water you know and right. it's like going up that mountain is a tough time and there were so many people a lot of them just complaining and moaning and sat down and all sorts of just the and you could feel the energy is off but as soon as we bumped, I think we bumped into Ian before we bumped into you. <laughs> you knew he's like the energy, regardless of how he's feeling, was such a positive vibe. And the determination was there. He was committed to getting up to the top of that mountain. And no matter how much he joked and said, oh, God, you know, it's not here yet. There was another really big guy yeah. on the mountain the same day. He had two sticks as well, wearing a black tracksuit. And a big knee strap he had on. I don't know if you see him. But he overtook Ian after about a mile. <laughs> and I watched Ian looking at him thinking, I'm not having this. <laughs> <laughs> I think he had him in sight. And he, and he did. He caught him. And I, I knew that was it. He thought, I can't have this guy beating me. <laughs> hey, that's yeah, what. <laughs> who said that? There's, I can't remember which company it is, but they're like, they're happy. They're okay being number two because you're always chasing. You're always there. Yeah. You're the target. You're the hungry oh. bull. 
you know, when you're running a marathon, yeah, never never start too too forward if you run a marathon because it's quite demoralising when everyone keeps overtaking you. So do it the other way. Start further back so that you're pushing, overtaking people. And mentally, you can keep going fast because you're, you're overtaking. If it's the other way around and people, because you've started too fast, people start overtaking you, you think this is rubbish. But start further back and overtake people, even if they're walking. <laughs> and mentally, it keeps you going. <laughs> this is true. Take your victories. Uh, I think... That's it. it. Another man and just take it. I think this phase is... Uh, for me, it gets us to this point uh, that I'm reminded of the the Persian poet Rumi, and I think other people have said it, particularly politicians or military men, about this idea of yesterday I was clever and I wanted to change the world, whereas today I'm wise, so I'm trying to change myself. And I think everything you've shared for this final phase almost to get to where you are right now presently and to what led you to be on Mount Snowden when we were up there as well is because you started to work on yourself and see the bigger picture it's not just about you to serve to other people because the person who helped you get out of that didn't want anything in return they just gave you this extra time and committed a service almost with no expectation, with nothing. And you want to do the same, which is an incredible thing. And that's why I'm so, I think, privileged that we've managed to get you on here today. And you were so encouraging as well. And just like, oh, what's this about? Um, Can I get involved? I mean, anyone listening, you can see this is what the Mentor community is about. And... You, you fit right in, Tony, you know? <laughs> and I say all that because I'm now going to give you some of our surprise closing questions, which you don't know. <laughs> Sometimes I have no filter between my brain and my mouth, so we'll get <laughs> Well, we'll see. I mean, I do... Perhaps before I just jump into those, I just want to quickly perhaps find out what what is next for you. Like, what is there something you can see for yourself? Like, what do you what would you like to discover next about your character or yourself? Or is there something that you're looking for before I get into just these final quick questions? What we was talking about, like a um, a discovery thing, and we didn't really touch too much on it. And you know, I think a journey of self discovery. It's, um, what is it? it? Yeah, it's finding out what you like, you know, like, and what, what you dislike. And what I went to America and I was on my own, and it was a bit of a weird experience. Took a backpack. But what I realized was that prior to going to America, I was dating and out and about with friends and always eating in these restaurants where there was all, you know, really nice foods. And I wasn't really eating what, I really liked. I was eating what looked good as well. Do you get what I mean? Yeah. So when I went to and I was walking around, do you know what? I found bars with great big steakhouses and real dirty foods and things and found things that I really and realized that I can eat anything I want while I'm here. But I found myself in burger joints. You know, so I knew what I liked, but it doesn't mean to say I'm gonna eat that because I'm I'm really not encouraging that at all, you know, like I'm I'm quite healthy. 
And uh, but you know, finding what you like. And, and one of my biggest things is, is music. You know, I I'm an absolute. I, I've always my family would be brought up on Motown to David Bowie to rock music to you know I used to MC at drum and bass places and <laughs> all sorts. Of, I was I was out. And, uh, you know, but then, but now I play guitar. So when I moved to the South Coast, I wanted to explore more music, get to some open mic nights. You know, I'm a free man. I, I, just because I don't drink and that I class myself as an alcoholic, it doesn't mean to say that I can't go in wet places. I have to question myself why I'm going there, what my motives are, what's my reason for going these places. But I don't have to worry about it. I'm, I'm, I'm under no fear of drink at all. So I can. I want to. I want to explore music more. You know, get involved in music. Maybe writing some songs and and singing. And I'm. I, I'll tell you the other thing as well. I'm not even a great singer, but the fear of what people think of me is gone. I'm not worried. I think you know what. Life's too short to worry about that. Just enjoy yourself. Just absolutely. If you like it, I've always sung. I've always whistled. You know, I'm at work. People, whistle. Oh, you like a little tweeting bird. But just stop. And but I just want to do things more that I enjoy. And. One of them, particularly when it comes to like the, the the bigger stuff that we you know we met on Snowden, is I'm going to look at doing the uh, the South Downs 100 walk. So maybe you guys can jump on board with that, and we'll we'll plan it. Which is it's from Winchester to Eastbourne, and it's across the South Downs, and it's 100 miles exactly. You can run it, you can walk it, you can camp it, you can do whatever you want. But have a look at it, and we'll talk about it. And maybe we'll raise some money together, eh? Yeah, I'm up for that. That, that's my first big tick is the South Downs way. Can't Need to get in. to 50 first. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll, but I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. <laughs> okay, what yeah. about you guys? You got any big goals? You got any big goals coming up once this all blows over, which it will? This too shall pass. Um, I've got a uh, challenge. Well, Shai has actually helped me in, the, in terms of plucking up the courage to do 50 miles so that's that's going to yeah. be momentous looking forward to it awesome awesome and what are you up to mileage already uh no nah, i'm entry level i'm a spring chicken i've just started awesome you know i wish you well with that because uh when i when i first started running i couldn't run a mile and i said that before joking about i couldn't run a bath in 2012 and now i was running a mile then a three miles and then I'd done a first half marathon in 2015. And I, when I got to the finish line, I thought I was going to die. But any races that I've done, it doesn't matter if it's 10K, if you pace it right, you should always feel like you're going to die at the finish line. I do a park run 5K and I was running park run in just under 20 minutes. So you can, but I started doing park run. My first park run was 28 minutes, but I kept training. But every park run, Towards the 5K, I thought I was going to die. So my mind said, Ali, how are you ever going to do a marathon? I've done half a marathon. I thought I, was, I thought, I can't do that twice, but it's not. That's not how it is. It's just setting that mind and that distance and, you know, having that finish line in, in your mind and knowing your pace and, and, and fuel, fuel, so important, fuel, fuel and the amazing, amazing. Best of luck with that. <laughs> nice one. Yeah, you learn a lot along the way. Um, well, I think we could talk all night, <laughs> all day, all night. I love this. <laughs> but we'll save that for when we bring you back in or after we've done the 100 mile together. Uh, which yeah, that would be a It's going to happen. Uh, yeah, all right. I know it will. Question one. For Go for it. 
What's the best thing about being black? Best thing about you can all sing. <laughs> That's a lie. <laughs> I don't know about that one. I, I, I was told. I was told I'm black from the waist down. Need to see a doctor about that, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> All right. Next question, please. <laughs> Who taught you how to shave? My dad. My dad was a military man and uh, he was in the army. So he was quite, um, he actually taught me to iron when I was a kid and he taught me to shave. But to be honest with you, I think I remember standing there and he was showing me what to do. And I remember him saying, you know, don't forget the bit under your lip and the top lip. I think I was really young then. And then I think it's not necessarily because you don't wake up with a beard, do you? So you teach yourself how to shave because when you get one little or a couple of little stubble little bits, you start to do them little bits, don't you? And then after a little while, like a few months later, you're doing a bit at the top of your lip. And then you start getting a couple of little bits under your chin and you start doing them. And before you know it, your, your old face is covered every day, isn't it? You know? <laughs> Initially, my dad, and he had the foam, the foam in a jar and a brush. And my granddad used to shave with no foam and just an old big razor and boiling water. Boil and dip it in the boiling water and shave. And I, oh my goodness, he didn't teach me how to shave. <laughs> That's a tough man. <laughs> <laughs> Hard as nails. Oh, you're not wrong. I think, uh, Ray, do you want to take the next two? You're on mute. Apologies. Can you hear me now? Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay, so my question to you is, what would you say to your younger self? One second. What would I say to my younger self? I love that question. Be kind to yourself. Be right. kind to yourself. Because I, I treated myself like it was self-harming without leaving scars. And I didn't cover a little thing earlier, and I said that... Um, I often watch how I talk to myself because the way I talk to myself is the way I'm going to see myself. And that, I used to say to myself back in the day when I thought I was a little bit of a tough nut, if, if somebody spoke to me the way I speak to myself, I would have hit them. So why am I allowing myself to speak to me like it. So I started to watch what I said to myself because subconsciously, or maybe that's, I'm not sure if that's the right word subconsciously, but 
there's a voice that talks to us all the time, whether you like it or not, it's there. Probably just said something to you as I said that. Probably just said, what's he on about? <laughs> but, but there's a voice and it talks to you. But that voice, without you realising, can talk to you really negatively, really negatively. And my, mine does anyway. Sometimes you ain't going to be able to do that. You'll never do that. Oh, you're gonna, you know, negative. So I have to watch how I talk to myself. So I go back to it, be kind to myself. And that's how I talk to myself. Amazing. And that feeds into, you know, the next question, because um, as men, I think we all have bands and things like that. But one thing we we don't do is have these conversations, whether they're uncomfortable or, or not, these real conversation that get into the nitty gritty and just allow us to know that it's okay not to be okay and just share each other's problems so my question is what to you what do you wish more men talked about i wish what do i wish more men talked about i'm comfortable with pausing on a question rather than trying to spit the answer out because take your time what do I wish men talk about? Because the obvious answer for me to sit and say is I wish they talked about their feelings more. But um, I think I wish men were, were more positive towards each other because we're too quick to take the piss out of each other's failings and each other's defects. And sometimes it might only be banter. But sometimes it can grind people. So I wish we had time to talk about how good we are to each other. Do you know what I mean? And sat down and said, my friend phoned me up a little while ago. Bruce lives in South London. And he said to me, you all right, bruv? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, you know, I've just rung you. He said, I was just sitting here thinking about you. He said, I just want to tell you how proud I am and I love you. It blew me away because he's a little South London geezer still. Do you know what I mean? And I went, well, what are you after, Bruce? You want to borrow some money? He went, no, no, serious. So listen, we've been through a lot. He said, and I was just sitting here thinking about you, blah, 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 blah. He said, and I can't believe, you know, you've got your house down there and, and you, you know, where, where you've come. He said, I love you. It blew me away. So if you ain't told your brother you love him and you mean it, go and do it. Because it meant so much to me. It brought a lump to my throat, tears to my eyes. Couldn't believe it. And I thought, that's caring. Because seven, seven years ago, when I was detoxing for the last time, that man come and sat around my house and sat on the edge of my bed, the sofa, because I knew that they, they weren't going to give me no more. It was because it happened several times. I drank and then detox and drank and detox till I worked, till I learned through this guy what I suffered with. I um, He sat by the end of that sofa, you know, feeding me gummy bears and green tea and uh, and and helped me with cold, blank, uh, cold flannels and everything whilst all the sweat was coming out and the shakes and the tremors and everything was happening. He stayed there the whole time. You know what I mean? That's brotherhood. Brotherhood. And just for the record, he's black. <laughs> just so you know. But, he, you know, he's my brother. I love him to pieces. And he was there. You know, and he phoned me up the other day and to say that, um, you know, he loved me. And that, that was amazing. You know, so I, I believe that it's, it's good. I think we, we don't, because we've got that. It's definitely getting better. See, where I'm at work now, I have to, uh, because I've got a, a position of responsibility and I have guys come into the office, I have to induct them, send them out to work. I always say to them, if you've got a problem, guys, meaning work, yeah, 
come and speak to me. But I say, more importantly, if you've got something personal, you want to come and share with me, come and share it with me. And the door will be closed and it won't go anywhere else. And they look at me and they're a bit taken back by it because I mean it. Do you know what I mean? I don't pay lip service. I mean what I say. So, and you'll be surprised how many guys come back especially when I say to them that I don't drink because I can't stop when I start. They laugh. They go, oh, I like that. And then they'll come in and start asking questions. They're, my mate has got this little problem. But you know who they're asking for. They're asking for themselves. My mate this, you know, and I say, listen, cut the mate bullshit. If you've got a problem, sit down. We'll have a chat and I'll tell you a little story. And then I, I have a chat with them. You know, I've got no issue with sharing my experience because it'll help someone else. Thank you. You know, it's... So moving to hear you, you know, say how you impact and help people. It's, it's, it's that thing of why I say, you know, um, allowing people to lean on you, learn from you. And so you can obviously lead them onto that straight and narrow path to find themselves. Um, and yeah, I, I, I totally agree because one thing I've seen in my journey and everybody that embarked on the journey is that you, just being more expressive to each other as you know men and brothers it just brings a new deep-rooted meaningful person inside of you it's getting so much better now though there's a lot more awareness around it you know it's it's not because especially in the construction industry we've got the highest rate of suicide in construction so i've got posters up and stuff and you know with the samaritans and the charity numbers and some some recovery numbers and bits and bobs so I mean, by all means, if you wanted to send me a poster, I'll be happy to put it up on site. You know, I'll take it with me to my different jobs. But there's, um, but there's a lot more awareness around it now, which I think is fantastic. But then also, life is a lot more complicated now, so there needs to be more awareness. Mm. There, needs, there needs to be. There's a lot more pressure for us guys and, and the girls and for, for everybody in this day and age, you know, because we're, we've been moulded now into these, into these sort of... Um, if you like humans that have to fit into this commercial world that we live in and the consumerism world where we feel that we've got to be something we're not all the time and we're completely forgetting how to live. You know, I had to remind myself when I moved here that life isn't all about just keep going out, earning money, pound note all the time. And, you know, because you're missing it, you're missing it. There is a, there's a quote by the Dalai Lama. Do you know, you know, he says this quote, let me just see if I can find it quickly, guys. He says about man. Where's that gone? I bet I can't find it. You can edit this five minutes when I try and find this. I find it. interesting. Dalai Lama quotes uh, most fascinating about man. Because it's so true, it's um, no, it's not. It's, I'm not going to be able to find it because it's. I feel pressured. <laughs> it's homework for the listeners. <laughs> yeah, I'll send it to you. What did he say? He says. Nah, we'll give up on it, I think. About man. It's definitely there. I found this quite a few times. It's not there. 
Yeah, he just talks about man spends his life trying to make money and everything, and then he spends the money to try and accumulate his health, and then you know, and not actually living. And it's it's quite an interesting quote, but still, we'll find out. Any more questions, guys? I think that's all the questions that we had for today, and that idea almost for the Dalai Lama, uh, the quote you're sort of hinting at, for looking into the sort of Buddhist type experience, I think one of the principles is to think good thoughts, speak good words, and do good deeds. And I want to commend you for being someone who attempts to live that way and who is encouraging, I think, other people to not just pursue the materialistic things that this world has to offer, but to embrace that spiritual side and to also embrace the other people around them in order to lift them up, just like we all get lifted up by various people along the way. I want to thank you for sharing so generously your time in being with us here today and speaking so honestly, uh, openly and hilariously about everything you've experienced. It's, it's been a real pleasure getting to know you more. And I, I hope everyone listening got a lot of value out of this. I think you shared a lot of key tools that have helped you through and continue to help you. And you shared how powerful it is to spot an opportunity to get help or to change your environment when you can. And I, I think especially during these periods where everyone is shut in, for those of us who have the seagull going off in our head, those of us who have the heavy backpack or those of us who've given up certain things and are finding there is a vacuum, there have been some really practical things here, suggestions and advice. And again, thank you for sharing that because I'm sure there's someone there listening who needed to hear this and I've taken a lot of value out of it. That all said. When um, I was feeling real down in the dumps once and you said about getting out and, uh, and just getting active, is that when I, when I do get these little low spots and things, because life isn't perfect, it happens. And, and one particular time I wasn't running and someone said to me, I said, oh, you know, I've got no enthusiasm. I can't get up. I just, you know, when it's on you, you know that when it's really on you, when you get that dark cloud that comes over and you just can't shift it. And he said to me, do you know what, Tony? He said, enthusiasm doesn't come to you. Get off your ass and get the enthusiasm. Because I was sitting waiting for enthusiasm to come to me being unenthusiastic and it ain't going to happen. So if you're feeling, if you haven't, if you're sitting at home and you're thinking, oh, I can't even bother to go out and run. That's, that, that enthusiasm doesn't come and pick you up off the sofa. You've got to get up. You've got to go. You've got to put the action in. And after a little bit of time, that enthusiasm will soon come back. You need to get up and just get active, you know, if it's possible. Ooh, I tell you what, I'm enthused. <laughs> if if anyone listening got enthused and they want to perhaps connect with you, support some of the things that you're on, or want to investigate or look at something that you're looking at or that you use for development, what's the best way for them to connect with you or to try and interact with some of the organizations that you're part of or with? I'm happy to give you my email and anybody is welcome to email me with anything. They've got any questions. They want to ask anything, you know, whatever, whatever it is, any, any marathon training advice. <laughs> 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 I'm not going to 
like I say, everything that I said today is only my experience. It's not it's not a professional opinion or anything. It's just my experience, and that's really important for people to remember. So if you can't record, if you can't agree with it, it's it's not it's if you don't identify with it or it's not your experience, that's not because I want to offend anyone or anything. It's because it's just my experience, and that's all I've got. That is it, you know, and it comes from the heart. So, and, and, but I really do hope and pray that there is somebody out there that I've reached out to that understands, you know, that maybe has been where I, where I was and maybe wants to come through it. But if you do, you know, and you want any help whatsoever, I'm more than happy to point in the right direction and, uh, and contact either one of these guys and, uh, and then email me. Great, man. Tony, thank you. Thank you for being another shining example of a positive uh, man looks like and a loving father, I think, also looks like. Uh, appreciate you. Glad to have you in our community. And it's been a pleasure spending this time with you, sir. Absolutely. Fantastic. And you know, I always say God puts people in your path for a reason. And if you're going to sit at home, you'll never work out why that is. <laughs> Except now. <Definitely>. So. <laughs> <laughs> With the exception of the pandemic. <laughs> to, add on, to add on that, no, I was just going to say that, um, you know, our love story with you started you know on that mountain um on at snowden and ever since then you know the, the bond and us obviously just reconnecting here and talking to each other um it's definitely we, we've, we've definitely made a connection for you know uh loving brothers for life um we're definitely going to do more events and you know meet up definitely 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 i've got a t-shirt waiting for you as well by the way <laughs> <laughs> I'll wear that. Don't worry about it. Sweet as. But no, thank you very much for that. Thank you. Thank you. Hope you enjoyed listening as much as we enjoyed creating. Don't forget to follow, like, share, and connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Subscribe to our latest episode and listen to any you missed. And tune in next episode. Take care.